the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about that story out of New York about Governor Cuomo. And then we're joined for two segments by Sarah Zylstra, senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Happy Friday. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to be with you today. Uh, it feels like I've been out of this chair for a little while. Now, the last two days I was here, but we were talking specifically a very special time with uh, the National School Project. Hopefully you were able to listen over the last two days because there are stories about equipping and sending high school students into their public schools with the gospel were so challenging and encouraging. Uh, before we had National School Project here, I was off at the beginning of the week on vacation with my family. So uh, the last kind of show that we did, a regular show, was last Friday. So it feels good to be back, to be back in the saddle here. As I said, uh, before we left, my family and I went to Arizona uh, last Friday until Tuesday night. And man, we ran hard and had a blast. It was fun to be out in the sun. Uh, we did a day in Sedona and hiking around did a day at the Grand Canyon. My kids had never seen the Grand Canyon before. I realized uh, all of that walking in Sedona and the Grand Canyon, how out of shape I am for a 43-year-old at the moment. Uh, and then we uh, got to go to a White Sox game on Monday and just had a blast being together as a family. There's something about getting out of town and uh, just having special family time. And so uh, while it's good to be back, man, was it really fun to be out and about? And it just felt normal, right? The world is kind of slowly but surely opening up a little bit. So uh, to be on an airplane and to be in another place uh, was really something. Uh, here's what you learn when you're in a place like Arizona as well. Uh, Illinois is very flat, and we know that, but then you go to places where there are mountains and where there are places to hike, and you are reminded again, man, look at these around you. Your mind just kind of takes it in. Well, I did want to catch up on two major news stories that are a couple days old now. Like I said, I, I haven't really been here. Uh, there's lots of things that happened in the news while I was gone. The NCAA tournament going on, Loyola beating Illinois. How much of a surprise was that? Now, Sister Jean and Loyola uh, kind of catching the hearts again, making yet another run. Uh, but then there's also Oral Roberts University, a 15 seed beating number two, Ohio State, and then a seven seed in Florida. They're moving on. Uh, so it's always fun to see those upsets, even though it busts your brackets. It's always Fun And in fact, uh, next segment, we're going to have Sarah Zylstra on. She's senior writer and also faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. Uh, she wrote an article at, an, at the Gospel Coalition interviewing the head coach of Oral Roberts. His name is Paul Mills. Uh, so we're going to talk to Sarah Zylstra about that interview and about what's going on. Uh, at Oral Roberts. But uh, a lot going on. President Biden held his first news conference yesterday. Uh, the, the vaccines continue to roll out. 
and, and as as there kind of looks like there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel right now. Uh, but the two stories and 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 one of them being really sad is that story out of Boulder, Colorado. And I'm sure that by now you followed that story as really Colorado, the entire nation grieves the death of 10 people uh, as just a madman, just a crazy man with a gun went into a grocery store and opened fire it uh, in Boulder, Colorado. And man, when I saw that story again, I was like, again, how is this going? How is this uh, uh, happening again? And, and your your heart just aches, not only when you watch the news uh, of it, but, but then when you hear the stories of who these men and women were who were needlessly and senselessly killed, just grocery shopping, right? How many of us just are going to go into Jewel today, into Dominic's or wherever, uh, Mariano's, and just go pick up some groceries and, and the randomness that this happened. And there is the story of the one police officer who was killed. His name is Eric Talley, uh, who responded to the call and went into this grocery store uh, to try to stop this madman. And he was shot and killed. It says Officer Talley here embodied, quote, everything policing deserves and needs. Uh, there was a, a somebody uh, there was a viral tweet going around of, of a woman uh, who had been um, who had had to call the police. This was five, six, seven years ago because her ex-husband or ex-boyfriend, who was very abusive, was pounding on her door. And it was Officer Tally who showed up. And it was Officer Tally and the other officers who who stayed with her and talked her through. There was another story that came out. Uh, it was Officer Tally who was in a story from 2013 saving a bunch of ducks who were stuck in a drainage ditch. And so just tragic. I saw another tweet that was flying around of a, a 60 year old uh, person, a man, I don't remember his name, who was killed in, uh, in this shooting. And his, his uh, daughter posted it and it was heartbreaking about this. So I don't want to get into gun control. I don't want to get into the politics. Already people start pontificating about what happened, why it happened, what we have to do. Sure, those conversations want to have, but I want to sit and lament that we live in a world where these things happen, where these needless, senseless tragedies happen. And it wants I want it to drive us to the hope that we have in Christ, but also drive us to the darkness that we have in our world. And so uh, I want to be people who pray for the victims, families, uh, but who also are working to heal our, our, our nation, to be light in the darkness, to be unifiers in the division and to say, this can't continue to happen. I, it's way above my pay grade to discuss, uh, whether it's gun control, mental illness reform, whatever else it is. Uh, but man, your heart, if your heart doesn't break when you see what happened in Boulder, Colorado or Atlanta the week before or whatever else it might be, uh, then something's wrong with you. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why am I numb to this? Because we can never be numb to this sort of brokenness and this sort of sin and this sort of needless tragedy. So that I, I did want to just speak on that. Second one that stood out to me was this idea of Governor Cuomo in New York. Governor Cuomo, uh, you know, he has uh, multiple sexual harassment uh, claims against him. 
Uh, he's got this scandal with COVID and the nursing homes. And now it appears that Governor Cuomo used his power, used his office to, in the early days of COVID, to direct tests and direct COVID resources towards his family and powerful friends, including CNN um, anchor Chris Cuomo. And, and so uh, the, this is yet another picture in vivid imagery of the corruption of power. This is a picture of power and also a reminder, whether it be in the church, in politics, don't hold up people as heroes too quickly. Uh, Governor Cuomo literally wrote a book in the midst of COVID about leading in the midst of COVID. And now we see it all crumbling around him. Our uh, news people were quick to hold up Governor Cuomo as the picture of a success in the midst of COVID. And now look at all that we're learning. We got to be careful, friends, in churches, in our culture, by who we hold up, uh, if we hold up anybody at all. Because yet another story here of Governor Cuomo of of power and of influence and of uh, not everything seeming, not everything being what it seems. So I want to highlight those two stories. They were two that jumped out to me. I'm excited to be joined for two segments coming up next by Sarah Zylstra. She is the senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition, as well as the co-author of a new book called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. She has written two fascinating articles in the last two weeks at the Gospel Coalition. We're going to discuss those two articles next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Happy Friday. Glad to have you with us today. And we are thrilled to be joined uh, by who's becoming a regular contributor here to The Common Good. I believe this is our third time in, uh, in two or three weeks. That being the senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition and the co-author of a new book called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. That is Sarah Zylstra. Sarah, thanks for coming back. How are you doing today? Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing pretty well. So far, so good. It's a Friday, so we're good to go, right? Mm -hmm. We're good to go. Hey, uh, as we said, we've had you on a couple times now in the last couple weeks talking about your book and your articles. But today you wrote just what I found to be two really interesting, fascinating articles in the Gospel Coalition uh, on their website in the last uh, week or two. So I just wanted to run through those with you uh, and let our audience hear about them. And hopefully they'll go take the time to read them. The first one is this. Uh, coaching Cinderella, meet Oral Roberts, Paul Mills. Now, a lot of us are watching and enamored right now by the NCAA tournament, <laughs> uh, the NCAA basketball tournament. And Oral Roberts was a 15 seed. So they're supposed to just get annihilated in the first round. But instead, they upset Ohio State and then went on to upset Florida. So they are now uh, in the Sweet 16, quite the Cinderella story. So you got to spend some time talking to their coach. Uh, let me start big picture. Uh, why did you decide, you know what, I want to spend some time. I, w- I want people to get to know him. Why did you even take the time to interview the Oral Roberts head coach? Yeah. So I, you know, it, the question is more like, why did he take the time to, to talk with me? Um, he is <laughs> so job. busy. He is just talking to everybody. I'm sure this week, I know he's, he's working like crazy. Um, I actually know there's a, a pastor named John Anwacheka who actually used to play for Paul Mills when John was a student at Baylor. Oh, wow. And so he knew his character. 
Um, and John is now a council member at the Gospel Coalition. And so he knew um, that we would be interested in, you know, he knew it was his connection. He knew that this would be a good story for us to tell and that and that Paul had was worth talking about. So, yeah. yeah. And as you talk to him, I would just love it. What's the mindset of Coach Mills right now? Like I said, his team, uh, I'm sure he gives all the we believed we could do it, but he's got to lie awake at night going, man, what's going on? And his whole life has changed literally in a week. So where's his mindset right now as his team makes this run in the tournament? You know, what struck me about him is he seems really calm and really, he's just, he seemed really calm and really with it. Um, and I think that has to do with his theology. As I was talking to him, he's very much, he meditates before every game. Um, Psalm 118, he just pulls that up on his dwell app on his phone and 20 minutes before every tip off, he just really gets into the Lord is good. Like mm. whether we win this game, whether we lose this game, whether we mess up, whether someone gets injured, the Lord is good. It doesn't mm. matter what else happens. And I think that just, he's been doing that forever. So that holds him. And you can really tell when you're talking to him, he sounds really grounded. Yeah. And then uh, part of the story that I didn't know about him, I remember the story at Baylor University a couple years ago when they were at rock bottom and he ended up coaching there some and, and reading your article. It was just a kind of a fascinating way that that came about. Why don't you tell us the story about how Coach Mills ended up at Baylor University and what was going on at Baylor at the time? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Um, so a couple years ago, um, at Baylor University, they were just having such a hard time. Their coaches didn't have a very good grasp on the players. And so there was a lot of drug use. There was a lot of illegal payments being made from coaches to players. And it just felt like things were really out of control. Well, this culminated in the summer. I believe it was 2003 when one player went missing. And after a few weeks, they found out that he had been shot and killed by a different basketball yeah. player at Baylor. So this sparked all kinds of NCAA investigations. They, they put tons of penalties on it. They fired on the team. They fired the head coach. Then the university also came along behind it and put more penalties on the team. And they allowed all the scholarship players. So any player that was worth paying to play was allowed to transfer to any other university. So they, of course they did. Yeah. So we're looking at a program that is just in shambles. Um, and they hired a new head coach and named Scott Drew. And Scott said to Paul Mills, would you come and coach here with me? To mm. which Paul Mills said, ha ha, no, I will not come <laughs> coach there Why with you. Why would I do that? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds crazy. And then Scott said, well, I heard you were a Christian. So will you at least pray about it? Well, if you're a Christian, you know, like that's, you know, of course you're going to pray about it. Right. And you can't say, no, I'm not going to pray about that. So he did, and he loves the Lord and just um, prayed about it. And within a week, felt a strong calling to go there. Uh, well, God's ways are, God is so gracious because over the next stretch of time, I think it was about 12 years for them to rebuild their basketball program, Paul was able to watch all of that happen. And so he knew all the things that go into like rebuilding a team and making it really strong. So it was a gift for him. Unbelievable. Yeah. Baylor, anyone who knows now, it's quite the mm -hmm. redemption story under Scott Drew. They're one of the favorites to win the whole tournament. Wouldn't it be something if Oral Roberts ended up facing Baylor at some point? No, that would be amazing. So you tell the story also that last summer, as if he didn't have enough going on, Paul Mills uh, went and graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary with a master's in biblical and theological studies. And you ask the, uh, the great question here, why does a basketball coach need a theology degree? How did he answer that question? I know that was just, it just tickled me. It was such a funny thing. It would be, you know, why would you need to do that? But he said to me, you know what, Sarah, after practices, 
when the, you know, the lights are off and the balls are put away and the kids are getting ready to go. If a kid comes to ask you a question, he's not going to ask you, how can I shoot a better free throw? Or what did I, you know, talk to me about what I did on that last play of the game. What he comes and talks to his coach about at that time is, Hey, my dad hit my mom Mm. and I don't know what to do, or I don't know what to say to him when I see him later on. Um, and those like deep heart questions were the questions he was receiving. So, which probably any teacher or coach would tell you, you know, or anybody involved in a job with other people, like those are the hard questions. So he wanted, he's like, the more I know scripture, the better I am able to talk with these guys. And so he said that it was a gift for them, um, for him to go and be able to, to share with them good theology and share the Bible with them in a true way. Yeah. What a, what a challenge to the rest of us. Like, okay, don't separate you you work. You talk about faith and work, not to separate this this run by Oral Roberts hasn't been without controversy. Now there was a, uh, uh, a op-ed written by Hamel Haveri at the uh, USA Today. So a big publication Mm -hmm. that made the point that because of their quote unquote, um, you know, their, their, uh, bigoted views on LGBTQ policies that Oral Roberts literally shouldn't be allowed to play in the tournament. I know that wasn't part of your article. So you, that hadn't come out when you talked to Coach Mills. Uh, but I'm wondering just your thoughts on it and maybe how you think Coach Mills would react to that, uh, that op-ed. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't want to speak for him, but I yeah. sure know he's got a heart for the gospel and a, you know, he's got his, his eyes just trained on Jesus. So I would be surprised if it ruffled him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and on some respects, all of us, I mean, it's, it's a surprise, but also not that someone would be saying that out loud so publicly. Yeah. I do yeah. think it could serve as a warning. I and mean, this is definitely the way our culture is trending. So those who work for or love or care about Christian institutions, um, you know, that's, kind of the way our culture is going. But like yeah. we talked about with my gospel bound book, that's not a cause for anxiety. Um, that's just another place where we're rubbing against a culture and have a chance to look really different. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Again, that article at the Gospel Coalition, we'll put it up our Facebook page, is called Coaching Cinderella, Meet Oral Roberts, uh, Coach Paul Mills. Are you rooting for them now that you did this interview, even regardless of your of your brackets? Are you rooting for Oral Roberts now through the tournament? Well, I have to because they totally wrecked my bracket. So, um, yes, <laughs> yes, I'm so excited to watch them play. Yeah, yeah they, they did wreck everyone's tournament. Now they got another tough game. They're playing third seeded Arkansas, I believe mm-hmm. it is coming up. So, uh, an interesting article there. Sarah is the senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. Also the co-author of a new book called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You wrote a second article at the Gospel Coalition, this one back on March the 19th, called When Pastors Prayed in Montgomery. It's a, it's a story about pastors in Montgomery, Alabama this past summer. And it's a story that I found to be fascinating. Like there might be a book in this article right here, uh, cause it's a story that I had been unaware of and hadn't heard. So, uh, it might take you a little while to tell the story, but for our listeners, why don't you tell the story about what happened in Montgomery, Alabama? I will. And the first thing I'll tell you is what didn't happen Mm -hmm. Um, this summer when the riots took race rights all across our country. Right. A a whole bunch of cities um, are are up in 140 cities lit up in protests. National Guard coming out in 21 states. And you would think that Montgomery, Alabama, which is not a place that is a stranger to riots. It was the home of Rosa Parks and um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s preached there for a while. There's definitely a lot of civil rights stuff happening there. You would imagine that would be a city that would have a lot of trouble this summer, but it didn't. It was quite peaceful. Um, there were the, the 
protesters that came out were respected, respectful of the police and the police were respectful of the protesters. Nothing caught on fire. No businesses were, no glass was smashed. And so, um, and it caught the attention of, of some in the news who were kind of like, I wonder what's happening over there. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you at least, I, and I'm sure there's a, a lot of complex reasons for that, but I'll tell you at least one of the reasons why that happened. So about, about 30 years ago, there's a pastor named Jay Wolf who moved to Montgomery, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And he had grown up in Texas in a, in a house of privilege and a house of prejudice. Um, but when he was 13, he came to the Lord and um, he, he says, I started digging into the Bible and the Bible started digging into me. And he mm-hmm. just felt like he um, had to love all of people of all color. And so he did. This is back in the 60s. So it was, it was you know, he was loving God and loving his neighbor. Well, he mm-hmm. eventually becomes a pastor and comes to Montgomery and meets a guy named Carmen Felcioni, who he does not agree with theologically, but he does agree with, you know, on the Lordship of Christ, the, the need of people to be saved and praying for the city. Mm. And so he, these guys get together and they also knew some guys at the radio station. So the guys at the radio station would say, Hey, some pastors are going to get together and pray over at this church or over at this building. And they just regularly began to pray together. Now, of course, they weren't going to, they wisely did not study the Bible together because you can just imagine what would happen if you had a whole bunch of pastors together from different denominations <laughs> studying yes. the Bible. Not good. <laughs> but so they just said, they, they limited it to, they'd get together and they would pray for an hour just for the city, for the government, for the schools, for the communities, for any um, you know thing that was in the news. And then they would eat lunch together. And mm. this seems like the simplest of things. And it really was, but it just meant that they started to know like, oh, now I know your last name. Now I know the name of your wife and I know what your kids are doing. And after a while, I have your cell phone number. Um, And then maybe we start calling each other. And it's just like that very slow build of relationship. So they started swapping pulpits or, and eventually they had 65 to 70 pastors who were doing this with them. Wow. Or they would be like, hey, this church over here is going to start a tutoring thing. So if you've got people in your church who want to donate or who want to be tutors, come on over here. This is where we're sending the under-resourced kids to get education. Or, hey, this church is going to have a food pantry. Um, so they're going to set up the infrastructure for that. So if you want to donate food, go here. Or you, mm-hmm. if your people in your church like to do that, send them over here. So they just started to work together. And the whole time they're praying like crazy, like they'd get on a bus and this one pastor named Ken Austin would drive them around and they would just pray for these neighborhoods as they went through them. So really the bedrock foundation under all of everything they were doing was prayer, mm-hmm. which of course could be the only reason that it worked. So over time, that's what happened. So this summer after George Floyd was killed, um, you know, I love the way it comes together. One pastor's like, well, I called my friend Bob and other friend Joe, and then we called our friend Bill. And like, that's just <laughs> how they do it. It's so, yeah. you know, at this point, they're just friends calling each other. Like you would get some friends together for a game. Yeah. Um, and then they, they had a press conference together um, for the city and they just pr- held several meetings where they were praying for the city together. Um, and that certainly has to be one of the reasons that Montgomery stayed peaceful. Their leaders were all pulling in that same direction. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the picture? You, you touched on it a couple of times about um, they had theological differences, but they had a heart for the city and, and they kind of agreed on the big picture stuff. Uh, what does that teach the rest of us? Because uh, the word unity has been thrown around so much for good reason, right? In light of all that's going on in our country and culturally, politically, uh, how does what went on and is going on in Montgomery, just a great picture of John 17 of Jesus's prayer for unity of the church? Yeah, I think it's beautiful because these are 
black pastors, white pastors, charismatic pastors, Methodist mainline pastors, um, reformed conservative pastors. Um, I think they just, what they did was just boiled it down to that very, like they're not even signing, aren't even just, you know, able to all sign on to the apostles creed or something like we're yep. just down to like, Jesus is Lord. You need to believe in him to be saved. Like the gospel edit in one sentence, the most basic thing of all. And we need to pray for our city. Like two things that hopefully every Christian pastor would be able to agree with. Yeah, yeah. What's the takeaway? I know you're not a pastor, but what would you take away to pastors who read this? Is it just, hey, call the other pastors in your area or shoot an email to them and, and get together and pray and get to know them? What's the, what is kind of the takeaway, I think, for pastors? Because I think there's some nuggets in here that go, man, this... They, they, they didn't recreate the wheel here. This was not like some major thing they did here, but it clearly made a lot of fruit. It bore a lot of fruit within Montgomery, Alabama. What's the takeaway for pastors and for church leaders? I, I'm gonna, I, I think I know what it is. And it is um, praying with somebody else consistently and intentionally. I can't mm. tell you how many of my stories start with people. They don't have an agenda. They don't have a curriculum. They don't know what they're going to do about a problem, but they see a problem and somebody else sees it too. And all they do is just pray together consistently. It has to be like in a regular, like, Hey, we're going to get together every month. Or we're going to get together every week. And then they do it. And it doesn't happen the next time. Um, sometimes it takes a year. Um, sometimes, you know, that's probably generally true. Like six months to a year of that's praying right. together is when something starts to happen. But it's just coming to the Lord together consistently. If you can get some of your pastors, even if it's just like pastors in your same denomination who are in your area, or just like, hey, who are the other pastors in my town? Can we have a once a once a month? Can we have an hour where we pray together for our city? I, I think if you did that consistently, if I talked to you in a year from now, you would have a story. Yeah, that's that's a great word. That's a great word. Hey, Sarah, before we let you go and grateful for you coming back on again, uh, as we mentioned, we had you on a, a week or two ago to talk about your new book, Gospel Bound, along with Colin Hansen. Uh, could you let people know who maybe didn't hear that interview? Tell us about Gospel Bound. Tell us about this book that you guys put out. Yes, thank you. So Colin and I wrote my, Colin's my editor, and I've been telling these stories. My job at the Gospel Coalition is to tell stories of where God is at work in the world. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing that for about four years until, and then my editor noticed a pattern to them and that basically they follow the instructions that the early, Paul gives the early church in Romans. Um, love your neighbor, um, love your enemy too, mm -hmm. serve the weak, live with honor, um, live generously, extend hospitality. And so we took those um, and gave each one a each one of those directives a chapter and then filled it up with stories like, hey, we've seen people do this in real life. Mm -hmm. And um, we're hoping for, for our church now, who is being more and more marginalized, not to be anxious, like we were talking about um, with Paul Mills, not to be anxious when we run into the culture because, hey, the church thrives in the margins of a, of a society. So this is just like, this is what you do. Um, if somebody's writing an op-ed against you in the, in USA Today about why you shouldn't be in the tournament, you're just loving your enemies and, um, you don't need to have a strategy and you don't need to respond in a certain mm -hmm. way. You just have to, have to follow the Bible that already says what we need to do. Yeah. So we'd encourage you to go pick up Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. Uh, Sarah Zylstra, Senior Writer and Faith and Work Editor for the Gospel Coalition. These articles are great. We're going to put them up at our Facebook page, uh, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Sarah, thanks again for coming on. It's been a lot of fun. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. Hopefully you're looking forward to a great weekend. Any of those students out there for, I think, all of the Chicagoland area, if not Illinois, this is spring break week coming up. Uh, you've earned it. You've earned it with all of this remote learning and hybrid learning and crazy stuff going on in our schools this year. Uh, so hopefully families out there enjoy a spring break, whether you are staying in town or getting out of town. I have a lot of I'm very jealous. I know I got away last week, but I'm very jealous. I have a lot of friends and their families who are going to places that are warm outside. I know it's going to start warming up here in the Chicagoland area soon, but Man, the thought of getting away again with family and friends is nice. So hopefully uh, you are uh, at the very least going to enjoy a spring break coming up here. It's also Easter week where we have Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. Such an important week in the church calendar. Next week, we'll spend some time here on The Common Good reflecting upon all that Easter means. But as a reminder, we're going to beg to celebrate uh, in vivid imagery, the, the victory of Jesus Christ when he went to the cross and then he rose from the dead and the tomb was and is and always be, will be empty. We can proclaim next week, week that he is risen and that changes everything. And so hopefully you're preparing your heart, getting ready for Easter. I know it's been such a strange, strange year uh, and not everything is even close to back to normal yet, but we've got Easter coming uh, and we can look ahead and know that even in the pan in the midst of a pandemic, our savior, Jesus Christ is victorious and we can take great hope in that. And so we're going to celebrate that today. We're going to celebrate that this weekend and we'll celebrate that as we approach Easter next week. Well, one of the things we've liked to do here on the show is just uh, not only do we bring up news stories that we've seen or other things, but but just things that pop up on my Twitter feed. I don't know if you're on Twitter, but Twitter can be kind of the best of times, worst of times. And uh, when you're on Twitter, uh, things pop up, though, that, that at best uh, make you think and go, man, what do I agree with that? What do I think about that? And conversations go on. And so I uh, two tweets I want to read to you. One from somebody I don't know who he is. The other one from someone who's been on the show before. Uh, this tweet came out because it started then uh, some conversation. And, and I just thought it was interesting. This is from a guy by the name of Ellis B. Uh, Ellis B. And uh, he wrote this. Uh, Do churches still need preachers? That's the question he asks. Do churches still need preachers? With the ability to stream leading scholars and communicators. Oh, here. Sorry, I got that wrong. With the ability to stream leading scholars and communicators are curators and facilitators the future skills needed for church leadership. Uh, The YouTube channel becomes the shared Pauline letter. Let me read that again. Do churches still need preachers? With the ability to stream leading scholars and communicators are curators and facilitators the future skills needed for local church leadership. David Fitch, who we've had on the show before, he is at Northern Seminary. He's a pastor, a professor. He also talks a lot about preaching. So David Fitch replied, we've lost, I fear, the meaning of preaching. That is the proclaiming of the gospel into a context, real lives, issues, 
brokenness of our context. This must be done locally, he writes. And then he goes on to say, I wrote about this in Faithful Presence, Presence chapter five. And Ellis wrote back to him. He says, I was deliberate in choosing curator for that purpose. He says, FYI, I believe in hyper-localized church, but as also see how smaller churches can lack skills and facilities, particularly when compared to their urban family. Uh, and, and so it goes on. This conversation goes on and the tweets. I found this to be an interesting concept. I just wanted to put it out there for you. Do churches is, is one of the things that we've learned over the last year uh, being online, online church, everything being virtual is one of the things that we have learned uh, that we maybe could start to do more online and not just have ourselves online, but bring in outside voices, bring in the best preachers and the best scholars and the best communicators. I think David Fitch is right here. We uh, There's something being lost here in context. Uh, and that's that the local church pastor can can know his flock, right? The pastor is the shepherd and can speak into the context, into real lives, into the brokenness and into the context of his or her local uh, embodied church, into his community, into her community. So I do think churches still need preachers, but I think uh, this person, Ellis B., also brings up an interesting point. That, uh, that we, I think one thing we've learned in this world that we have here is that we should and can be bringing in more outside voices, uh, that we could be bringing in more outside voices, uh, to speak into our congregations, that they don't need to be physically present, but that we've learned is that we can be having people come in. So a real interesting tweet that I thought, uh, is thought provoking and can get us all thinking. The other one I wanted to bring up is from Rich Velotis, who is a phenomenal follow on Twitter. He's, he's been on the show before, wrote a great book called The Deeply Formed Life. Uh, he also pastors a church in New York City in Queens. And here's what Rich wrote. He wrote, pastors are not CEOs. Churches are not corporations. Members of the community are not investors. We are shepherds. We are a new family. We are a community of servants. The point here is not that principles from the business world are not useful, but that the force behind our identity and mission is rooted in a different place. And he goes on to say, our pastoral identity is to be marked by being carer of souls, not bottom line and efficiency oriented. Our communal identity is not to be driven by corporate metrics, but by discernment. Our life together is not to be motivated by what we can get, but how we can serve each other. Man, such so much to unpack there from Rich Velotis. I'm, I'm so thankful for what Rich writes there because oftentimes – Pastors long to be CEOs. They long for their churches to look for corporation, look like corporations. Uh, community members, people in the church look at their pastors primarily as leaders. But the reminder of the church is that the pastor is primarily a shepherd, that, that he or she shepherds the flock, knows the sheep, loves and care for and serve the people. And when we lose that, and instead, when we get into a corporate mentality of church that says bigger is always better, vision is all that there is, we must take that next hill. None of those things are bad necessarily, vision and taking the next hill. But when we forget that in 
primarily as pastors, we are called to serve our people, to be shepherds, to be loving our people and caring for our individual people, then we're losing something of what it means to be a pastor. And also on the flip side, for those who are parts of churches, he says, no, to be a part of a church is to be a community of servants, that we are uh, motivated by how can we serve one another. When we talk about being a community as a church, that's what it means, that we serve one another, that we watch out for one another. It's not about being in a church. We don't enter into a church and ask, what can I get? What can I get out of this place? Well, how is it serving me? And when it no longer serves me, then I move on to the next one. No, it's instead being about how can I serve this community? How can I invest into this church body? So I'm so thankful for the words here of Rich Velotis. Pastors are not CEOs. Churches are not corporations. Members of the community are not investors. We are shepherds. We are a new family. We are a community of servants. I would love to hear your response to that. You can do that at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. I'm cards on the table. I think that is a great word from Rich Velotis. Well, how, glad you're with us on this Friday. Coming up uh, the next hour, we're going to talk a little bit, uh, some stories that came out this week out of the pro-life world. And, and we're going to look at those next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about two interesting laws about abortion and the death penalty. And then the Gospel Coalition asks, does religious liberty have a future? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. We are really excited to have you with us today on this Friday afternoon. Uh, if you've been with The Common Good for any amount of time, you know that one of the things that we really enjoy here uh, is to discuss not just how does the church uh, function, but but how do we as Christians live as lights in our world? And, and one of the topics that comes up often uh, is, is abortion. And, and and not just abortion, although that's a huge one, but also just the general idea of what does it look like for us as Christians to live a pro-life ethic? Okay, abortion is maybe number one on there because we want to stand up for the marginalized and what more marginalized uh, and helpless is there than the unborn. But uh, sometimes we get ourselves in trouble by making it just about abortion. But instead, we want to have a pro-life ethic that says, uh, what does it mean to be pro-life when it comes to abortion? What does it mean to be pro-life when it comes to poverty? What does it mean to be pro-life when it comes to uh, issues around the world, maybe immigration issues or other? What does it mean to be pro-life for end-of-life uh, things? What does it mean to be pro-life when it comes to the criminal justice system? So what, what we want to challenge us to do as as uh, faithful followers of Jesus is to say, okay, if we want to be pro-life, if we want to be pro-neighbor, if we want to be pro-marginalized, if we want to be who Jesus has called us to be, what does it mean to live with that as our lens throughout all of these different ways and all of these different issues? And so I want to bring up two that stood out to me uh, just this week. 
uh, in the news. The first one is this Mississippi governor signs a bill outlawing abortion of Down syndrome babies. He says, therefore, choose life. Mississippi's Republican governor, Tate Reeves, has signed a new bill into law that would protect Down syndrome babies from abortion. According to Faithwire, the Down Syndrome Information Act, also known as Hudson's Law, requires doctors to provide educational information to parents of preborn children who are newly diagnosed with Down syndrome. The bill passed with wide bipartisan support in both state legislative chambers. The name behind Hudson's Law was taken from Hudson Hartman, a two-year-old Mississippian with Down syndrome. Last summer, uh, Governor Reeves signed another bill, the Life Equality Act, into law banning discrimination abortions based on race, sex, disability, or genetic makeup. Uh, at the recent signing of the legislation, it was praised by pro-life group Susan B. Anthony List said this, we thank Governor Reeves for signing Hudson's law and his strong pro-life leadership in Mississippi. This law goes hand in hand with the Life Equality Act and will serve as an important check to ensure that doctors are empowering parents of children who have Down syndrome with accurate information. Parents deserve to know that 99% of people with Down syndrome live happy and fulfilled lives, she continued. No child should be deprived of the right to be born, especially due to a disability. This is no less than modern day eugenics. Uh, so that was the first one that I saw out of Mississippi. And I want to cheer this up and say uh, that protecting the sanctity of life is among the most important things we as believers are called to do. And not all of you out there listening agree with me. We love having a uh, difference of opinion here on the common good. But I want to say that, that we, I, uh, as a Christ follower, uh, believe that one of the most important things that we can do is to stand up for the sanctity of life. Again, as I said earlier, across the spectrum, uh, beginning of life, pre-born, uh, I want to stand up for the sanctity of life of the poor, of the marginalized, uh, of people of other ethnicities and races and whatever else of myself. I, I want to stand up for the sanctity of life. Uh, for people at the end of life who are struggling, I want to stay, stand up for the sanctity of life of those with mental illness, whatever else it might be. And, and this one, the sanctity of life of, of not just the preborn, but those with disabilities. And, and, and good for the governor uh, of Mississippi saying, you know what? Uh, the, we want to make sure the right information is getting out there. And we want to see these babies born. Uh, and either raised by their parents or adopted or whatever else it might be. Here is the second story. Virginia becomes the first, first Southern state to abolish the death penalty as governor signs the law. Governor Ralph Northam signed the legislation Wednesday as there were 1,390 people put to death in the state. The first document at the time was in the Jamestown colony uh, in 1608. Northam went on to say, Justice and punishment are not always the same thing. That is too clearly evident in 400 years of the death penalty in Virginia. Uh, Northam, a Democrat, said during remarks ahead of the signing of, of signing the legislation, saying that it's both the right and the moral thing to do. I can say the death penalty is fundamentally flawed, he said. We know the system doesn't always get it right. Adding, make no mistake, if you commit most serious of crimes, you will be punished. While Virginia has now become the first state of the former Confederacy to ban the death penalty, it's the 23rd state to ban it. 
following Colorado last year, neighboring Maryland, uh, which the Census Bureau classifies as a southern state, abolished the death penalty in 2013. And so uh, I want to say that what I'm going to say here is I would guess controversial uh, and many of you are going to disagree. So let's have some fun. Let's open up our minds and let's have a conversation here. Uh, I think part of my pro-life ethic says that the death penalty uh, is needs to go away. I do not believe in the death penalty. I know many of my conservative friends think I'm crazy and think I'm wrong, not crazy, but think I'm wrong about that. But I personally do not believe the death penalty is something to be supported. A couple different reasons. Uh, because uh, if you look at statistics, uh, the use of the death penalty is not equal across races and across socioeconomics. Uh, but two, we know that while it may not happen often, we know that innocent people over the years have been put to death. And uh, that is enough for me to go, uh, that's not okay. And quite frankly, as a Christ follower, I believe that redemption is possible so that even if somebody is in prison, that there is opportunity for them to to be uh, redeemed, to be transformed, to come to know Christ, to turn their life around. Uh, I think that that when it comes to the dignity of all humans and transformation and and whatever else it might be, our belief that God still works miracles. I think the death penalty flies in the face of that, and I think for me it, that as well is a pro life issue. It's not just about abortion for me, and nor it should be for you. So I would encourage you through your pro life lenses to ask yourself, how do I justify the death penalty? I'd love to know. I'd love to know where I'm wrong because I know a lot of. Uh, committed Bible believing Christians who say, no, this is a deterrent. This is needed. This is uh, even biblical. Uh, I would disagree. And I would love to know your thoughts. You can do that at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, a couple more news stories, including what one of President Trump's uh, former lawyers had to say that has a lot of people shaking their head. That's coming up next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today on this Friday afternoon. Uh, hopefully you're looking forward to a great weekend. I know it's always fun Friday and now it's spring break week for our students. Uh, Easter week. So lots of good stuff going on as hopefully things start to get back to a little bit of normal. So as we know, over the last couple months, we haven't just been dealing with a pandemic in our world, in our culture, uh, in our country. We've also been dealing with just a very politically divided uh, country. Uh, we've got uh, people, I'm not breaking any news to you here, but uh, people on the right and people on the left uh, right now not only disagree, but tend to see each other as enemies. Uh, and and we had a very contentious election. And then post-election, it was flooded with lawyers and talk about how the election was unfair. And at the middle of that, at the heart of that was the Dominion voting systems. Uh, it's a manufacturer, the Dominion Voting Systems manufactured. They provide the election equipment used by more than 40 percent of U.S. voters. And 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 the people 
the Trump supporters, the lawyers and everybody who were claiming fraud, that's who they went in after. They went after the Dominion voting systems. Well, the Dominion voting systems came and said, oh, no, 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 no. You cannot just lob these grenades about us being uh, uh, about us being crooked, about us being part of a big conspiracy, because that's what it was. If you heard about Dominion voting systems over the last couple of months, oftentimes it was uh, from Trump supporters saying they were the problem. They were either manipulated or they were part of the bigger scheme to not uh, to make sure that Joe Biden was elected. And so Dominion, they went and they uh, sued the people, the lawyers or some of the TV said they sued Fox News. They sued many of the people uh, who were publicly defaming them. One of those people is a lawyer by the name of Sidney Powell. Sidney Powell, she was one of President Trump's former lawyers, uh, and she was uh, sued for $1.3 billion as part of a $1.3 billion defamation suit. And what she said the other day was amazing. Her defense was uh, mind boggling. Uh, Powell, who repeatedly pressed, I'm reading from CNN here, Powell, who repeatedly pressed unfounded claims of voter fraud on the airwaves and in court, now says, quote, this is her saying this. She said, quote, reasonable people would not accept her statements as fact because the legal process hadn't played out yet. And they go on to say it was a stunning admission from a woman who served as one of the top legal lieutenants. And it could put her in real legal jeopardy as she fights the defamation suit. Uh, First Amendment expert uh, Ted Botrius uh, said that the legal implications for Powell could be dire. She says, uh, he said, the First Amendment provides strong protections for statements of opinion. But what Dominion is pointing to is the fact that Ms. Powell was declaring that she had evidence of this fraud and this election malfeasance, uh, and she was declaring that as a matter of fact. The First Amendment doesn't protect knowingly false statements of fact. Uh, some others went on to say in their legal filing, it's official. Sidney Powell is a massive fraud. That is according to Sidney Powell herself. Uh, it's when I read this, here's the deal. Sidney Powell was one of the people uh, that that was out there going Dominion is categorically, even in court, is is uh, is part of the problem. And now she was basically quoted as saying Reasonable, reasonable people would have seen that as my opinion. They would not have seen that as fact uh, and that it hadn't been proven yet. And all of this stuff. I don't know, friends, when I saw I know there's more nuance to this and this and that. But Dominion has sued separately. Rudy Giuliani, Mike Lindell, uh, similar claims who made similar claims about Dominion. And, and what makes this hard uh, is that when she said no reasonable person would believe the allegations that were asserted in court, is that so, in some ways, I'm going to think it's just because of this, but in some ways, these allegations uh, led to what we saw on January the 6th. Uh, not one for one. There are many other things, but the, but the, what happened at uh, what happened at the Capitol building in many ways were from these claims of voter fraud and voter malfeasance, uh, voter indiscretion and whatever else that that, that, the, that the election wasn't fair. 
And here in some ways, she's admitting that, uh, that, you know what, no reasonable person would have believed what I said because there wasn't great evidence for it. That makes me mad. And it reminds me that we as Christians, we as Christ followers must, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, because it's not just the Republicans uh, who have trouble with, uh, with kind of crafting narratives. This is a equal opportunity issue in our culture. But friends, Christians must, must, must stand above this, be people of truth. Regardless of your politics, regardless of what it does to the narrative that you're hoping is true, we must be people who don't believe every conspiracy theory. We must be men and women uh, who say, you know what? We are going to get beyond the partisan politics. We're going to get beyond all of the fake news and whatever else. We're not just going to believe one side. We're going to do the work and we're going to try as best we can uh, to get to what's actually true. Because as Christians, we are men and women who proclaim truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, and where we don't hold on to that standard of truth in other places, then it shines uh, terribly upon the gospel that we claim to be true. So, man, when I read this, oh, it made me mad. And I know, again, there's some of you going, hey, you're not getting the whole story right. I understand that there's more in this filing. But the very heart of it, to have one of the people who is the loudest people yelling about the Dominion voting fraud and voter fraud this and voter fraud that, kind of backtracking and making some admissions uh, is, is really uh, disturbing to me. And it reminds me again, men and women, uh, that we as Christ followers must be different. We must be different. Be careful about what you put online. Be careful about what you forward. Do the homework. Read the other side of your political spectrum every now and then. Don't get caught up in all of the conspiracy theories and all of the craziness of partisan politics. Be different, church. Be different. And therefore, and then we can shine as light in the darkness. Just wanted to talk about that because, man, when I saw that story, it made me mad. Well, coming up next, Gospel Coalition embattled on all sides, they write. Does religious liberty have a future? That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's Friday. Glad that it is Friday. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today as we look forward to the weekend. You know what starts next week? I know it's Easter week. That's the big deal. A lot of you on spring break as well. But you know what starts next week? Major League Baseball. Opening day. I'm not sure that there are many things that I may more get more excited about uh, than opening day. Uh, and uh that's coming next week. That is coming next week, and we can be excited. It's like the right of spring. There's there's a couple things for me. I'm a huge sports fan. So there's a couple things for me that signal spring. One, opening day. I used to take – I used to try to stay home from school for it. I'll take time, whatever. I took my son out of school two years ago to watch Mets opening day on TV. Like I love opening day. Two, the NCAA Final Four, usually the same weekend. You're like, oh, okay, it's the final four. It's springtime. It's, it's what it is. And always the week after the final four, uh, always the week after the final four uh, comes uh, uh, the Masters. It's the Masters. 
the biggest golf tournament, my favorite golf tournament, because it's in Georgia. It's outside Atlanta in Augusta, and you see the azaleas, and you see spring. Nothing says springtime like the Masters in Augusta, Georgia. So you've got opening day. Just for the sports fan, you've got opening day, the final four, the Masters, and then we are full-fledged into springtime. Baseball is coming. Uh, sitting. Hopefully you'll be able to sit at a ballpark as the year goes on and enjoy the sunshine out at Wrigley or Guaranteed Rate uh, or wherever it is. Uh, that you catch your baseball. But anyway, ah, spring is coming. Spring is coming. Well, Gospel Coalition, Andrew Walker, he's an associate professor of Christian ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's also the author of a book called Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. So he's got a lot to say on this idea of religious freedom, something we hear a lot about. And the title of his article, we're not gonna be able to get the whole article in here, uh, but we'll have it up at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages at Common Good Talk. It says this, embattled on all sides, does religious liberty have a future. Let me just read. I'm, what I'm going to read is just the very beginning, and then I'm going to skip over it and get to the very end. He says, back in the 1990s, religious liberty possessed nearly bipartisan consensus on its important p- importance in American life. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act, now under question in the latest version of the Equality Act, it passed in 1993 with overwhelming support and even sponsored by Chuck Schumer and Ted Kennedy. The idea of prominent Democrats lending their support for religious liberty today is simply unheard of. On the left, the consensus holds that religious liberty gives room to bigotry and poses the final obstacle to the untrammeled success of the sexual revolution and the imperial self. That is a paragraph right there. But a new challenge, he says, has also arisen among more traditionally conservative avenues. As American culture secularizes at breakneck pace, it's common to see figures on the right side of the spectrum question whether a laissez-faire approach to religion isn't partly responsible to the fragmenting of American culture. This argument says America is defined by its founding era's association with a Christian worldview. The country didn't arise out of a vacuum, and its unique governing vision is a result of its Christian influence. If America ceases to be Christian, it says, it ceases to be America. What are Christians to make of this argument? He says there is an element of truth here. I don't believe nations emerge out of a vacuum. Ideas are enmeshed in cultural ecosystems. If America is stretched beyond its limits, it runs the risk of rejecting the constraints that made its propositional ideas possible. As the French philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville uh, wrote, reflecting on America's uniquely religious landscape, he wrote, despotism can do without faith, but freedom cannot. So that's his beginning. Okay, it's kind of setting up uh, what do we do on the left and the right with religious freedom? What I want to do then is skip to his last section. It's called realism in a fallen world. So a lot of stuff he says he's going to go in this article to talk about the problems and the, and the issues with the left. He's also going to talk about the problems and the issues with the right as it comes to religious freedom. He ends this way. Let me read for us. He says, America need not be exhaustively Christian to be America but neither can it be wholly secular. Embracing this paradox means defending the religious liberty of all faiths, 
We have to understand, biblically speaking, that governing authorities mustn't have the power of the sword over religious matters. The legitimacy of a common social order isn't tied to the social order uniting around the same religion. God has given us creational orders and natural law to make society habitable. Habitable. I can't speak right now. Habitable. Uh, Scripture witnesses to the uh, intelligibility of creation and reason as self-attesting witnesses to God's authority in the structure and design of this world, which necessarily includes the moral law. When we run afoul of these, of course, society will endanger itself. But the alternate reality in which we marginalize or coerce some and banish others is not in keeping with a New Testament pattern of statecraft or soteriology. Of course, it would be desirable and ideal for society to be composed of regenerate Christians, but that's not a reality we're told is possible apart from Christ bringing his kingdom in the full. No, religious liberty mustn't fall victim to hyper-individualism, relativism, or over-realized hegonomy. Uh, he- uh, behind these are anthropological, epistemolo- epistemological, and eschatological errors of assumption that humanity is defined by desire, skepticism, and power. The allure of moral, religious, and cultural uniformity mustn't come at the expense of religious freedom. A baseline, here where he's going to kind of land the plane, a baseline of religious liberty is thus essential. Unless all religions receive equal recognition under the law, one religious group will set whatever exacting, exacting standards it desires as the basis of societal membership and participation. Whether Catholic versus Protestant, Protestant versus other Protestant, atheist versus evangelical, one group is always tempted to exclude based on some religious or viewpoint criteria. One thing can be sure, he says, societies are inherently dynamic and majorities often change. The challenge is to preserve a constitutional structure that assumes these dynamics and that perpetually retrieves their value in each age in order to secure liberty and justice for all. That's Andrew Walker, Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I love what he writes there. We've talked about this on the show before, uh, that it can't just be about religious freedom for the Christian, whether it be in public school, in the public square, wherever else it might be. No, the, the Christians and the Muslims, uh, the Buddhist, all of us must kind of link arms here when it comes to religious liberty and fight against the state and say, no, we need religious liberty for all because here's the issue at play. And I think Andrew Walker talks about it so well. Uh, the Christian might be in the majority now, but a generation from now, two generations from now, we may not be. And so if it's always just religious freedom and religious liberty for the majority, what happens if and when we are not the majority? No, no, we want religious freedom for all because that is what is best for our country. And and that's what also pushes back against the creep of government trying to take away religious liberty from any. Because that if just because they come for those that aren't your your religion doesn't mean they won't come for you later. And so we as churches, we as Christians need to fight for religious liberty of all justice for all. We need to link arms in that way. That's a place where we cross the aisles uh, of denominations and even of faith. Uh, 
here in the United States where we want to secure liberty and justice for all. A great article there written by Andrew Walker. Got it up at our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, lately I've been loving uh, reading from the blog of Tim Challies. And we're going to end the week here by one that he wrote this week called Why Do We Add to Our Trouble? That's coming up next as we close out the show on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. It is almost the weekend. Hope that you're having a great Friday afternoon. And uh, you know what? Something we've been doing since the beginning of really the pandemic is when we end the show... Uh, and in this case, end the week, we try to end it with a little bit of um, inspiration, maybe some good news, maybe things to get us thinking, something to head us off into the rest of our day. And in this case, into our weekend, uh, just to have on our mind. And lately, I've kind of stumbled upon, and I know he's a very popular blogger, but in the Christian world, his name is Tim Challies, uh, and he blogs at challies.com. I've really enjoyed the stuff that he has written. And so I'm going to ask you to stay with me here. I'm going to read the vast majority of his blog post from two days ago entitled, Why Do We Add to Our Trouble? I just think this is great uh, and a great way to end our week. And so... Uh, if you'll stay with me here, it's called Why Do We Add to Our Trouble? Tim Challies writes, the road is narrow, the path is long, the way is rough. Yet God has called each one of us to run the race of the Christian life. Our every step in this great race is taken in the presence of deadly enemies. Our every stride opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil's fiery darts always threaten to harm us. The heart's evil longings to distract us. The world's glittering enticements to persuade us to drop out. Even while we keep our eyes fixed on the prize, we uh, uh, we grow weary with the running. We groan through the plotting. If life is already so difficult, the path already so rough, why do we so often add to our trouble? Why, instead of laying aside every weight, do we gather more weights to ourselves? Why, instead of making every step as light as possible, do we make our steps heavier? Why do we throw fresh burdens upon our backs? We make our way more difficult when we give ourselves over to sin. Every sin is a weight. Every vice a heavy load to our souls. Sin burdens the mind, clouds the judgment, afflicts the conscience. Our calling is to put off the old and put on the new, to reject all that belongs to the former self and to embrace all that belongs to the self that is being remade in the image of Jesus Christ. Our calling is to lay aside every sin that otherwise clings so heavily and otherwise hinders our pace. Only then can we run with endurance the race that is set before us. Only then can we keep pace. Our steps grow lighter when we repent of every sin, when we cast off every transgression, when we remove every hindrance. Holiness in our lives brings lightness to our steps. We also make our way more difficult when we look back instead of forward. Behind us is our former selves. Ahead of us, our renewed selves. Behind us is depravity. Ahead of us is holiness. Behind us is our prior evil master. And ahead of us, our new loving father. Lot's wife looked back to her former self and became a pillar of salt. Demas looked back to the world's enticements and abandoned Paul. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, warned the Lord. 
The gospel always directs our gaze forward. Ruth followed God's calling all the way to the line of the Messiah. The prodigal son repented and ran straight to the arms of the father. Paul forgot all his accomplishments and pressed on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews pondered the great cloud of witnesses and looked to Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith. The prize lies not behind and not beside, but only ever ahead. And then we make our way more difficult when we run alone instead of in the presence of others. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity, the kind of adversity that may overwhelm us and threaten to turn us aside. A threefold cord is not easily broken. And sometimes we need friends to drape our tired arms over their shoulders and to carry us along for a while. When our bodies are racked with sobs and we don't know what we that we can take another step. It's then that we need our friends who will weep with those who weep, who will bear the burdens on our behalf. This race is too long. It's too difficult and too tiring to ever run along or run alone. Finally, we make our way more difficult when we give our hearts and minds to that which is discouraging instead of encouraging. Though we are called to carefully ponder whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, our hearts often focus instead on what is corrupt, wrong, polluted, hideous, and reprehensible. Instead of focusing on what is excellent and worthy of praise, we focus on what is evil and worthy only of condemnation. We're so often drawn to bad news more than good, to evidences of depravity more than evidences of grace. Why then should we be surprised that our feet grow weary, that our pace begins to falter. What else could happen when we load our minds with all that is awful and forsake all that is good? When we choose to ponder in our hearts those things that are shameful to speak with our mouths. Careful little eyes what you see. Careful little ears what you hear. Careful little fingers what you click. Here's his last paragraph. God has called each of his people to run a race. A race that for the great majority of us will be a marathon more than a sprint. This is no small calling, no brief task, no little labor. We run best when we run light, free from the burdens of sin, free from the distractions of the past, free from the dangers of solitude, free from the weight of discouragement. We must run through, uh, though enemies surround us and threaten us. We must run, though burdened by so- bombarded by sorrows, losses, discouragements. We must run, though others give up, drop out, and fall away. We must run, though many will attempt to persuade us to smoother, wider, and easier way. We must run with endurance, run to win the prize, run until we have finished the race, run until we have received the victor's crown. That is Tim Challies. Why do we add to our troubles? Friends, I wanted to end there as we head into our weekend because life is hard. There are many of you right now who are feeling that life is burdening you. It is weighing you down. And and you need to hear that that is normal, but that also we serve a savior who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Cast your burdens upon him. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And Jim Challey says, you know what it is that often burns us? Yeah, it is the struggles of this world. It's the brokenness of the world. But we also burden ourselves 
through our sinful choices, by the things we put on, by the uh, the regrets that we hold when he talked about looking back, by the burdens, by the sinful choices that we make in our present. And that Hebrews tells us to strip off the sin that so easily entangles. Look at that imagery. Strip off the sin that so easily entangles and run the race that he talks about with endurance, keeping our eyes focused on our heavenly father, keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. As Charlie says, God has called each of his people to run a race, a marathon more than a sprint. We need people running alongside us, cheering us on, but we need to run unencumbered un, as, as unburdened as possible. Eyes focused on him. Such good word here from Tim Challies about the race that we are called to run and what holds us back, what burdens us, and cheering us on to just keep running. I wanted to send us into the weekend with that. Hopefully that's good news. Let me close us. I love closing. I love the doxology out of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Friends, it's been great to have you with us today here on The Common Good. We hope that you have a great weekend. We'll be back together on Monday from 4 until 6. Until then, we hope that you have a wonderful weekend. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.